0: We love you, Jesus, because you first loved us. That's it. That's the reason why we love you. We love you because you first loved us. (sighs) Thank you for saving us. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for dying for us, Lord. Lord, we think of our leaders, and uh, we pray that you'd give them wisdom for the president, the vice president, for our judges and our justices and our congressmen and our senators. Lord, uh, for Jerry Jr. uh, here in Lynchburg. Lord, for our our leaders, God, guide them and direct them. Lord, for our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guardsmen, we pray for their protection and their safety. we pray that you'd also save them. And for our enemies who are seeking to do evil, We pray that you would foil their plans even right now in this moment and that you would do a miracle and save them. And for the persecuted church, God, for Leah Cherubu, this teenage girl still being held by Boko Haram in Nigeria because she's a Christian. Lord, we remember those who are in chains as if in chains with them. And we pray for her specifically and Pastor Yusuf in Iran and Pastor Wang and Pastor John who are imprisoned in China. God, help them. Strengthen them, Lord. Help them, Jesus. Lord, and today I pray that you would help us that you would free us from distractions. Lord, I pray that you'd keep me from error as I preach, that I'd say only what you want me to say, nothing more. And Lord, if there's something I shouldn't say that I, I've been planning on saying, don't let me say that. And if there's something I need to say today, Lord, that I have no, no plan, no intention of, of saying, I pray that you would give me a word perhaps for someone here today. Lord, I need you. God, we need you. So help us to hear from you. Encourage those of us who need encouragement, those of us who need conviction. God, give us what we need. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Today we begin part 27 of our journey through the book of the Judges. This is it. It's the, the final countdown now. I uh, was talking to the tech guys. Apparently we preached the very first sermon in Judges last October. So, uh, yeah, part 27 today. The end of an era. That's how it always feels. <laughs> Well, if you're joining us today for the very first time, you're being dropped in on the, the tail end of this ongoing story. Uh, especially today, it's gonna operate and function very much as kind of a part three. These last three chapters have kind of been, if I could, chapter 19, part one, chapter 20, part two, chapter 21, part three. Uh, the story began back in chapter 19. The Levite his concubine traveling through Israel, stop, in the territory of Benjamin, one of the twelve tribes, specifically in the city of Gibeah. Expecting to receive hospitality, they don't. uh, With the exception of one man who hosts uh, the Levite and his concubine, that's like his second class wife. And the men of the city of Gibeah come out, not to give hospitality, but they ask the host to turn over the Levite, who he is, staying the night at the host's house, so that they can uh, rape him. The host says no no you guys can't do this wicked and evil thing and he tries talking them down negotiating with this mob offers up his own daughter um, and the levite's concubine in the end it's the levite's concubine his second class wife who is thrown out to the mob and they rape and abuse her all night long they leave her for dead in the morning she's unresponsive the levite takes her back home then he chops up her body in 12 different pieces sends a piece of her body to all the 12 tribes of Israel. That really gets their attention and their blood boiling. Then last week in part two, they gather together at Mizpah. They're furious about what's taken place in Israel. 400,000 men ready to execute judgment on the people responsible. They send letters out to the people of Benjamin saying, turn over the men responsible where this took place in Gibeah. Benjamin not only refuses to hand over the men responsible for this Wicked act, but they actually raise an army of some 25,000-plus Benjaminites to combat the 400,000-man army of Israel. In the end, Israel ends up not only beating Benjamin, but then going a little overboard, and they essentially annihilate and slaughter all the people of Benjamin, with the exception of 600 men who are essentially now refugees hiding in the the hills and the mountains. That's all that's left of them. And that's where our story ended last week. And we begin today in chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God. And they lifted up their voices and they wept bitterly and they said oh lord the god of israel why has this happened in israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in israel as i said chapter 20 ends with benjamin essentially being wiped off the map but what we learn here is that when the people had gathered together in response to receiving a part of this woman's body Not only had they pledged their swords to the mission to execute judgment on the people of Benjamin, but they had also taken an oath, we learn here, that had occurred back in chapter 20. And the oath was, we're never, ever going to give any of our daughters to any of the men of Benjamin as husbands, as wives for them. We're we're never, ever going to do that. They made this pledge which is kind of interesting and ironic at the same time because up to this point, Israel really hasn't cared about who they get with, who they marry. It hasn't really concerned them throughout the book of the Judges whether they marry someone who loves God, whether they marry someone who doesn't love God. And of course, Deuteronomy 7, 1-5, very clear, Moses had made the, given the instructions that they were not to intermarry with the people of Canaan. People of Canaan, they served other gods. They weren't like-minded. And, and now they're, they're applying Deuteronomy 7, the prohibition against marrying the Canaanites, ironically, to their own people. It serves as this final acknowledgement of just how far Israel has gone. The total and complete Canaanization of Israel, you might say. And by Canaanization of Israel, I mean that There is no difference anymore between Israel and Canaan, between Israel and the rest of the world. There should be a difference between the people of God and the world. Not anymore. Not by a long shot. Well, the battle's over from last week. Everyone has been slaughtered, with the exception of these 600 men, these fugitives. That's all that's left of Benjamin. And they are they are doomed to live a life of celibacy at this point unless they marry outside of Israel. In either case, there's no future for Benjamin going forward. And it's interesting because Jacob's fears, going back to the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 42, his fear was, no, you can't take Benjamin with you to Egypt. You can't do it. I've already lost Joseph. not going to lose Benjamin. And yet the very fears that Jacob had back in Genesis 42 now are about to happen. Benjamin's about to be totally gone. Entire tribe wiped out. And here's what they say in verse 3 once again. And they said, O oh Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking. On the surface, their, dare I say, prayer? Sounds like a request for information. How did you let this happen, God. God, how could, you, how could you let this happen? Why, Lord, would this happen? But I don't think it really is a request for information because they know the answer. They know how and why this has taken place going back to the events that we discussed in chapter 19 with the Levite and his concubine, his second-class wife. We know how we got from point A to point B. They know how why they're in the situation that they're in. They, they should have been able to discern this. I think maybe what would have been a more complete prayer, a more sincere prayer is, Lord, we're in this situation right now. Looking back, we kind of went overboard in our anger, in our revenge. And now, Lord, one of these tribes is essentially decimated, no doubt because of our inability to hold our anger together, Lord. And, and Lord, where do we go from here? Because we also made this oath that we wouldn't give them any of our wives. Lord, Lord, what would you have us do at this point? Probably would have made a better prayer. Probably. How did they get to this point? God, why, why has this happened? Well, this has happened because when Israel, as God defines Israel, not Israel how Israel defines Israel, right? I think it's important, right? People like to say, oh, I'm a Christian. Okay, I always love to ask people. And don't ever let this discourage you from witnessing to people when people say, oh, I'm a Christian, because sometimes I'm like, oh, they're a Christian. Okay, I, I don't need to witness to them now. I always like to ask, oh, that's cool. I'm a Christian too. Why do you think you're a Christian? I like to ask that question because when I ask that question, you know what I normally get? I'm a good person. That's my number one response. Or I'm Baptist, or I'm Southern Baptist, or I'm Methodist, or I'm United Methodist, or I was baptized, or I was sprinkled, or my parents are Christians, or my, I'm a really good person, or blah, 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 I think it's really important when we think about, okay, why has why this happened, God? How has this happened? Bottom line, when Israel fails as God defines Israel, not as Israel defines Israel, but when Israel fails to be Israel, there are consequences. And that's what's happened here. Israel has failed to be Israel. They've they've essentially ceased to exist. And the problem is not restricted to Gibeah, where the men came out and raped and abused this woman. It's not restricted to Gibeah, or even to the Benjaminites. It is characteristic of the nation as a whole. And unless the people of Israel wake up, what's just happened to their little brother Benjamin, that could easily happen to all of them. And so upon looking at this closer, this verse right here, this so-called prayer phrase kind of as a question, it really sounds more like a cry of protest than an honest inquiry. I think indeed that the tone is even accusatory. The Israelites are, I think, they're, they're blaming God here as if somehow God has failed to protect his people. Why has this happened in Israel? How could you let this happen, God? Right? Like the, like the guy who comes to me. Joe, I need to talk to you for a second. Yeah, what's going on? <sighs> oh, boy. So uh, my girlfriend's pregnant. Okay? And I don't understand how God could have let this happen, he says in the very next breath. okay, dude, like you, don't, you don't understand how this happened. I don't want to have to take you back to 10th grade biology. I think, you know, like, what do you, what do you mean? I just, I don't understand. How could God have let this happen? Why would this have happened, Joe? That's what it sounds like to me, right? The, the nature of the question here, the so-called question in verse three, like it attempts to shift the responsibility from Israel to God. But when the people of God stop acting like the people of God, th- there are consequences. And oh, by the way, Israel, they kind of take like the coward's way out here. They would rather put the responsibility back on God than actually take it themselves. Right? Their, their prayer should have been like, Lord, we're in this mess right now, and we really have ourselves to blame from going overboard in the previous chapter and slaughtering, it, slaughtering everybody, taking this oath that we would never give them our daughters, right? I'm even, even... The great wise Justin Bieber says, never say never, right? So, you know, they're looking back, and uh, that's what I'm thinking. Like, their prayers should have be, been, Lord, we've messed up. What do we do now? Lord, because we, we, we need, we, we don't have a solution to this God. I think that's what their prayer should have been here, rather than what it is. And I think it's an attempt to totally absolve themselves of responsibility. Hear that? That's silence. That's God's response to them. Deafening. He doesn't say anything. And then the very next verse they, no doubt, in desperation over God's silence try to get his attention by ritual observance look at verse 4 and the next day the people rose early they hadn't heard anything back and they built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and still no response he doesn't answer them he doesn't respond and no doubt the people of Israel are frustrated over his silence in the face of their inquiry. And no doubt they're, they're, they're frustrated, right? I think they're also impatient, which is why in verse four, it says, and the next day, right? it kind of reminds me of Israel at Mount Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain. They haven't heard from him in the hot minute. So they're like, Hey, Aaron, don't think he's coming back. Why don't you just make us uh, an idol that we can worship? Right? They, they haven't heard back from God. They're growing impatient, they're frustrated, and they're on the verge of taking matters into their own hands. It can be hard when we pray and we don't hear back from God. It can be frustrating when it seems like our prayers are landing on deaf ears. They're not. They're not. But it still can be frustrating. I think that the appropriate response would have been something like the psalmist says in Psalms 40, verse 1 and 2. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. That's hard to do. He inclined to me. He heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. He set my feet up on a rock, making my steps secure. It's hard to wait. Israel's not they're not ready to wait they're growing more and more impatient more and more frustrated all the while not taking responsibility putting it on God and here they begin to take matters into their own hand they begin to exploit some loopholes you might say doing anything and everything they could to revive the tribe of Benjamin if only we can just get them wives we can revive them how do we get them wives when we all swore we would never give them any of our daughters? Verse 5. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? In the previous chapter when they were at Mizpah, when they got the parts of her body and they first gathered together. So who, who had an unexcused absence? That's, that's what they're asking. For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. Anyone uh, like that attendance policy? I'm not a big fan of it, but uh, yeah, he's going to die. Anybody who didn't show up, you're dead. Verse 6 And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin their brother. And they said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. Verse 7 What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. Understand you've got 12 tribes in Israel. You know, you think of Judah, you think of Benjamin, you know, you've got your 12 tribes. But within each tribe, you've got these subgroups called clans. And so you might be from the tribe of Virginia, but you might be from the clan of Charlottesville or Roanoke or Lynchburg, or at least reside in one of those, those cities. And so when you see these names that you don't really recognize, you're like, oh, I recognize Judah or Benjamin. But then you get to, like, say, Jabesh Gilead. That's their subgroups within the tribes. So nobody, nobody comes from Jabesh Gilead. And this is just kind of Perfect. By a perverse stroke of luck, and I do mean perverse in the most perverted way, by a perverse stroke of luck, they are actually relieved to find that one clan didn't show up, Jabesh Gilead. They never showed up, which means they never took the oath saying they would not give any of their daughters away. Oh, we might have found our solution to this problem how perfect so here's what they do verse 10 so the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword all the women and the little ones this is what you shall do every male and every woman that has lain with a male you shall devote to destruction and they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by line with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Gilead. They go and they annihilate this entire population of men, women, and children with one notable exception, the 400 virgins. Remember, they had an oath saying they would not give any of their daughters in marriage to the guys from Benjamin, but they never promised that they wouldn't give other people's daughters. And so this just works out perfectly for them even though the narrator offers no legal or theological rationale for this story from a human perspective it's really clever it's a really clever strategy it has the appearance of legality technically following the strict letter of the law but it it certainly violates the spirit of the law, and it is very, very morally questionable. And they kill everyone of Jabesh Gilead, everybody. They take the 400 young women, the virgins. Notice at the end of verse 12, it says, to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. The camp at Shiloh. You see, the narrator has already deliberately portrayed the people of gibeah and those are the ones responsible for raping the levite's concubine he's already portrayed them as these neo-sodomites these neo canaanites this new version right they're canaanites 2.0 the people of gibeah and yet by defending the men of gibeah the benjaminites well they've placed themselves in the same category and now the narrator goes a step further by making the shocking suggestion that Shiloh is essentially a fundamentally a Canaanite city. But Shiloh's not fundamentally a Canaanite city, not from their perspective. Remember in the previous chapter, they brought the Ark of the Covenant as almost like this good luck charm to Bethel there on the, the brink of war with the people of Benjamin and we had commented and observed that the Ark of the Covenant is typically in the tabernacle and that's typically in Shiloh of all places. This would be like suggesting that the most sacred site in all of Christendom would be, I don't know, Vatican City, maybe, if you're Catholic. This would be like saying, guys, I'd love for you to come to Lynchburg City Church. We have got some of the best crack cocaine. You can just snort it off the back pews. Um, We've got hookers, prostitutes, whores. We will hook you guys up That's how shocking this statement is. For him to say this, but that's the point that he's trying to make. And it becomes no surprise upon learning this that God has refused to answer the Israelite so called prayers at the beginning of the chapter. No surprise at all. Then the whole congregation sent word, verse 13, to the people of Benjamin, who were at the Rock of Rimmon, and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive, of the women of Jabesh Gilead, but they were not enough for them. Obviously, we know there's 600 fugitives, they've got 400 women, they don't have enough wives for all of them. One-third of them still don't have wives. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. For the second time, the narrator observes that Benjamin felt sorry. Excuse me, Israel felt sorry for Benjamin for the second time here. The narrator wants to point that out. And for the second time, it almost seems that once again, the people are putting the responsibility back onto God. For what does he say at the end of verse 15? Because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation, verse 16, said, What shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? The women are destroyed out of Benjamin. Yes, this is true. But in saying this, it it kind of obscures Israel's role. Why are the women destroyed? Oh, what did you say? You guys, after you you won the battle, you went in and you just killed everybody? Gotcha, right? They make this statement really obscuring like what they've done and their role in this of course this is the essence of the story from the very beginning like they're upset they're upset at the predicament that they're in but through their actions they're gonna keep creating more predicaments through their refusal to take ownership to take responsibility through their growing impatience and frustration through their willingness to take matters into their own hands they're just going to create more problems. Like every solution they try to engineer will just create another problem. Then the elders of the congregation, verse 16, said, What shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since the women, of, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, verse 17, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe cannot be blotted out of Israel. We just can't let this happen. The elders, they're worried about the survival of Benjamin. They won't be able to take possession of this inheritance, of this territorial allotment. The best chance they have of continuing to coexist within this 12-tribe confederacy is if we figure out a way to come up with 200 more wives for them. Of course, this is easier said than done. Yet, they remember... Once again, this is easier said than done because we cannot give them, verse 18, wives from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, hang on. You know what? There, there might be another way to do this. It might be something we haven't thought of yet. Behold there is the yearly feast of the lord at shiloh which is north of bethel on the east of the highway that goes up from bethel to shechem and south of lebanon and they said yeah there is and they commanded the people of benjamin saying go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch if the daughters of shiloh come out to dance in the dances then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of shiloh and go to the land of benjamin they got this all figured out once again they, they attempt to evade the consequences for their actions and they come up with this this idea right and in keeping with and i know it's been a long time but going back to judges chapter 2 verse 10 what do we hear there? In Judges 2, verse 10, it says, Another generation arose after Joshua. They didn't know the Lord. And it seems that this unnamed festival is probably just that. It has been pagan. It has been just canonized from the culture around them, like going to a church service and you walk in and you're singing Taylor Swift. That happens. Don't get me started on that. And so most likely this, this unnamed festival, even though they refer to the festival of the Lord, most likely it maybe used to be at one point, but it probably isn't anymore. But that's their plan. Their plan is go in, lay in ambush, take the women. Any of you guys ever seen the movie Seven Brides or Seven Brothers? One of my favorite musicals, okay, yeah. That and The Sound of Music, which that has nothing to do with the sermon. Seven brothers, seven brothers, really good musical set in Oregon Territory, 1850s. And these seven brothers? Well, they are longing to have a girl. And their older brother Adam gives them this advice that, listen, if you guys really want your girl, just go and get her. Just go into the town, take her. Oh, but her dad, he won't approve of me. So what? And so this is the advice that he gives and then he goes on to cite some obscure biblical passage as justification for what they're doing right this is actually the text so here here's it right it's it's biblical guys you just go in there you just kidnap your women you take them and it's 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 biblical it's in the good book so um let me be really clear up front This would be what I would call a descriptive series of events, not a prescriptive series of events. Uh, Just keep that in your mind. So that's the strategy. They're going to come, you lay an ambush, and when they start dancing, you all run out and you just grab them and then get out of town. And yes, of course, their dads and families will be upset, but we've got the perfect response. Here's what we're going to say. Verse 22, and when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. That's going to be our response. When they come and they complain, they're going to be like, Listen, remember what happened to Jabesh Gilead? Look at the bride side. We didn't come and slaughter you guys in battle and then take them we actually let you guys live so we're kind of doing you a favor plus i know you guys made the oath saying you wouldn't give any of your daughters like we did when we were at mizpah back in the previous chapter but here's the thing you're not technically giving your daughters they were being taken from you so this is a win-win for everybody how perfect is this these guys have thought of everything right and all throughout this story they're just like straddling the line of legality even though everything they do is really 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 questionably when it comes to all things morality what i found is if it's questionably moral it's probably not moral just that's what i've learned but more than that we see here in this story this continue this continuous uh abusive manner because it really is abusive in which men treat women in the book of the judges and the elders, the leaders of Israel, they're the ones that are sanctioning this violence against their own daughters. And it doesn't even seem to like cross their mind that these are the same Benjaminites who like a hot minute earlier, had recently defended their fellow tribesmen after they had gang raped this young woman. Once again, technically it's legal-ish, I guess, but that's their mindset. Verse 23 And the people of Benjamin did so, and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went, and they returned to their inheritance, and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The story begins in chapter 19 with the individual rape of this man's second-class wife. She's abused, essentially murdered, And now, by the end of the story, where we started with an individual woman who had been raped, we now essentially have 600 rape victims. Like, when you you think about the victims in this story, the list is so long. You've got the Levite's concubine in chapter 19. You've got the women of Benjamin in chapter 20, verse 48, who they go in their anger and revenge and just slaughter the entire population then you've got the virgins of Jabesh Gilead not to mention everyone in that town who dies it's kind of questionable how legal or moral that is that they killed everyone even though they didn't show up then you've got the dancers of Shiloh the story starts off with one woman being raped and it ends with essentially 600 women being raped and the people of Israel throughout the story they're they're more concerned with saving physical Israel than actually anything to do with spiritual Israel. They're, they're more concerned with just preserving. We've got to preserve Benjamin. We've got to preserve Benjamin. Okay, let's... I know, let's think about what, what's happened. How do we get here in the first place? They're, they're more concerned to save physical Israel than to preserve the covenant. It makes me think of church discipline. For most Christians they probably could not define that. They might think they could. They might think, okay, I can define it, but it probably isn't. Because we don't talk about church discipline. The Bible does. Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, the Bible does. Um, But, you know, the guy at your church divorces his wife, gets with his secretary, It's okay, because they give a lot of money to the church. So, no big deal. Or something like that happens, but the pastor really likes them, and they play golf, like, every Saturday, so it's cool. No big deal. That's Israel. Like, they're they're more concerned with just keeping the status quo, preserving physical Israel. They don't care about spiritual Israel at all. And they're so blinded to this that in their, I guess, showing compassion, in their dysfunctional way of showing compassion to the people of Benjamin, they ultimately just hurt other people. They oppress other people along the way. And the entire nation becomes this accomplice in the defense of Canaanism. See, what Benjamin did for Gibeah we're not going to turn over the people that raped and murdered this woman. What they did for her, that's what Israel has done. You say, shouldn't we show compassion? Shouldn't we show grace to people? Yeah, we absolutely should. But there is a time to show compassion and grace, and there's also a time to exercise justice. And, and, they're, and they're so focused, right, on, on wanting to help Benjamin that they end up hurting so many other people along the way i i I go i go a step further i say there are few books in the bible that offer the the church today as much of a mirror into their own lives as the book of the judges this is like such a grim reminder that god's people are often their their own worst enemy we think of the enemies outside the church as the biggest threat but really it's those within This book is a wake-up call for the church, for the true people of God. It is is like a a pleading for the people of God to return to Him, to abandon their Canaanite ways, to to recommit themselves to joyful obedience to His will. The story is a call to take personal responsibility, something Israel has not done despite the fact that it was their anger, despite the fact it was their revenge that created this problem in the first place. They went way overboard. This call is a story. It's a call to to maturity, to acknowledge that God's not the problem. They are. It's a call to turn. This story is a call to repent. This story is one to remind us to patiently trust the Lord. It's a call to the people of God everywhere to stop trying to take matters into their own hands. And I see this a lot among, I don't know, unmarried people. And I know sometimes how frustrating it can be I didn't get married until I was 28 Um, I know how frustrating it can be you want to you want to find somebody right and there's this pressure because you're at the world's most exciting university and don't get me started with all the you know LU crushes posts whatever not that I look at that stuff but so it's like, God, please just bring me someone, right? Because if I, if I can only find a wife for Benjamin, I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, if I can only just find somebody for myself, it'll fix all my problems. Everything will then just be better. And that's the, the whole focus, right? Ask people, have you prayed about it? Yeah, I have. Been waiting like 18 minutes. Haven't heard anything back from God yet. And then I see people because they they get in such a hurry. They just think this is going to fix everything, right? If we can just find wives for Benjamin, it'll fix all the other problems in our lives. And then we take matters into our own hands and do they love Jesus? Well, I don't know. Maybe. Who cares, right? Or it's like, you know, the standards are so low. It's like, are they breathing? Cool. Yeah, I'll go on a date with them. And then what happens is, is six months later, you find yourself thinking that if you just got this far, right, if you could just move, you just get the first down, man, everything's gonna be fixed, everything's gonna be better, all the problems are gonna be solved. And then six months later, you go from one problem, right? You go from like one woman being raped and abused to 600 more problems, 600 more victims, 600 more pains. And it all started where the people didn't want to take responsibility. God, how could you let this happen? I've been praying. You haven't answered our prayers. How dare you? They don't take responsibility. They are impatient. They're frustrated. They decide to take matters into their own hands, which only complicates and hurts other people. Oh, that we might remember the words of the psalmist. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. How long did he wait? He said, I waited patiently for the Lord. It doesn't say how long he waited. And you know what? I'm glad that it doesn't say. I waited patiently for the Lord. He, He inclined to me. He heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. Out of the miry bog, he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure." You know, the beauty of the story here, and there is beauty in the story, is to see God turn everything around, including the wrath of human beings upon each other to praise him. You know, the beauty in this story is to see God accomplishing his work with or without his people. The beauty of this story is to see the providence of God, that this this little tribe would be preserved despite their wickedness and would yield some of the most notable historical characters. The first king in Israel, Saul, came from the tribe of Benjamin and, of course, the apostle Paul. A thousand years after this, came from the tribe of Benjamin. And my prayer today is that God would continue to lavish his mercy upon an undeserving and, quite frankly, sometimes just impatient people. (laughs) That we would respond accordingly, that we would respond by recommitting ourselves to him and Patiently trusting in His timing and His providence that we might return to the King in all our ways. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. My prayer is that our story would be different. God, we love You and we thank You for saving us and rescuing us. Lord, I pray god that we would trust you whether it's in relationships or jobs lord that we would trust you with our friendships that we would trust you with our money that we would trust you with every single thing in our lives lord i pray god that you would mature us and grow us that we would take responsibility that we'd own those moments lord when we just get it totally wrong And that we would truly turn to you. Not in an accusatory fashion the way Israel did, but that we would truly turn to you, God. Jesus, we need your help. In a day and age in which much of the church is compromised, much of the church is canonized. we need your help, Lord. We thank you. For the mercy that you've shown every single one of us, culminating with your death on the cross. Help us, Lord. We need you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We are going to take communion uh, in a few short moments, and we do it a little bit differently at Lynchburg City Church. Um, You don't have to be a member. Of the church to take communion but you do have to be a Christian and if you're not a Christian I'd ask you not to take communion today um, I'd also remind you of what Paul tells the Corinthians first Corinthians 11 many of them were taking communion in an unworthy manner and as a result God got so fed up he killed some of them and so if you need to sit here for a second you need to have a conversation with the Lord If there is unrepentant sin in your life, deal with that here. Deal with that now before you come back. But when you are ready to take the bread, to take the juice, when when you are ready, come to the back and we will serve you.